0: so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can, and often does, happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening.
1: Hello. Hi there. Welcome. Hello. shh. We're going to start. Don't do that Greg, no, no. take some good pictures of me. Not revenge. from revenge. No, you do no, it from that down. Back. No, get <laughs> <her. laughs> revenge. Greg took a bow to me. Yeah. <laughs> not from that angle. No, <laughs> <laughs> not from that angle. You have to do it right. there. Come here, come no, here. Come no, here. Come no, here. No, no, okay. Not from that angle. But aren't you coming up here? You're coming up here. Go ahead, go Okay, all right. Before we start, actually, I know some of you, not all of you, but some of you probably knew Alice K. Turner. Um, Alice died of pneumonia Saturday night um, suddenly. And But uh, the reason I'm bringing Alice up is Alice, aside from being fiction editor of Playboy for 20 years and having worked at Publishers Weekly and um, New York Magazine and at least one or two book companies over the years, um, she started this series with Mark Jacobson back in, I don't even, I, we can't, I can't remember. It was in the, <laughs> the late, late 90s, 80s.
2: Late 90s. The 90s or the 80s? I don't think it was that. All right, that well early. anyway, we she
1: start she, she helped she and Mark started this the fantastic fiction series and um and I took over from her when she left Playboy and when she just decided not to do the series anymore. Um and you are going to say something too
2: Yes. Me. Um I I didn't know Alice that well. Um so I don't have that much to say except through uh, personal experience. Um Back in 2002, when I knew nothing about the genre except from what I had read in bookstores, uh, I took a class at the New School. It was supposed to be taught by Terry Bisson. Instead, uh, uh, Alice Turner uh, subbed for, for him. And uh, she, was, she was fantastic. And she was my introduction to, to the genre. And uh, she introduced me to um, the folks who are part of the Altered Fluid Writers Group uh, you may have heard of them. I wouldn't have uh met them or had joined joined the group if it wasn't for her. And uh you know And you, we met uh, Yes. Actually the very <laughs> first time Ellen and I met uh was at uh the party after the after that class. Uh Alice threw a party and, and invited um editors like Ellen and I believe Sheila Williams was there. It was a long time ago, I'm not I think sure. She was. Um several other people and uh, years later, like I, I, I would, it would go years before I, I would see Alice maybe two, three, four years I'd see her at Sierra, like a SIFWA event or around in one of these, uh, you know, she came to KGB a few times and she'd always remember and say, How are you doing? and would name other people in the class, How are they doing? She always remembered them and, and she was always warm, always welcoming, and always just really open and friendly. And I, And I feel as if the that she, you know, personally, like I wouldn't be here if it if it wasn't if it wasn't for Alice Turner, and I just I just wanted to say that, and I, and I think that she affected uh, a lot of people that way. So I just I just uh, Ellen and I w- we want to
1: propose a toast. However, neither of us have our glasses with us, and also no, mine's water anyway. But anyway, a toast to Alice Turner, and in her memory. Thank you. Thank you. Back to our scheduled program. Okay, we have two fine readers tonight. Unfortunately, we do not have have their books to sell, but if you brought your own (laughs) copies of their books, I'm sure they will be happy to inscribe it with anything you'd like. (laughs) Yes, they will. I'll make them do it. It's all right. They will, they will. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, so KGB, Fantastic Fiction at KGB has been here for a long time. We do not pay the bar um, to use a space, what the way we pay them is drink, buy their drinks, either seriously, soft drinks or liquor. They'd be very happy if you would just, you know, um, get, get wasted. <laughs> Hello, Genevieve, come on in. <laughs> um, so please, either now or in the intermission, we'll have an intermission about 10 minutes between each reader and um, have a drink, have a drink and toast Alice again. So um, our first reader tonight is Gregory Frost who is the author of eight novels, including Shadow Bridge, Lord Tuffet, Fitcher's Brides, and over 50 short stories of the fantastic. His novelette, No Others are Genuine, was a 2014 long fiction finalist for the Bram Stoker Award. His most recent stories are in Out of Tune, an anthology of ballad stories edited by Jonathan Mayberry, and in Jetpack Adventures commemorating the work of the late Dave Stevens, Rocketeer, paren, by now he Oh, I guess there's a period there. I sorry. <laughs> I, um, I did put a period between the sentences. Rocketeer period. You're an I know, I know. <laughs> and I oh why did not you proofread it? <laughs> See no one proofreads me. I am an editor but I don't I hate Editing proofreading. In front of us. I,
0: <laughs> this is what it looks like. Sure. <laughs> this, <laughs>
1: this is, the, this is the, the, the ugliness behind it everybody else and I need someone to do it for me. Okay, anyway. <laughs> By now, he may finally have finished his current novel project, no, but he I says haven't. he hasn't. No, So please welcome Gregory Frost. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.
3: Wait go ahead,
1: sit. Would you like? <laughs> that means, Last chance. Okay. <laughs> no. sit.
3: Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Thank you. Uh, Je suis Jean d'Arc. Okay, there. So that's out of the way. Besides so that, is Je suis oh, okay. Charlie Croker. I don't know which. depends on whether I'm doing Michael Kane or not. So, um... I thought, I, um, I am in the middle, the end, middle, that's not fair, I am at, at the end of working on a book, and I've been working on the book for a very long time, and I didn't want to read a chapter uh, out of the book in progress, so um, I thought I would do <coughs> my equivalent of a Charlie Hebdo, um, and I have one story that sort of fits the bill, um, and it's my satirical entertainment here. Uh, which I'll read to you. This was a story that was uh, written many years ago uh, at the request of Damon Knight, so that sh- tells you right there it's more than two years ago, um, and was reprinted a couple years back by uh, Michael Bishop in an anthology of his called uh, Cross of Centuries.
2: Um.
3: So that might tell you a little bit about the subject matter. But The title of the story is <coughs> Touring Jesus' World. Dr. Hani found me standing at the entrance to his theme park. Piled in front of me, carved from mammoth stones that would have pleased C.B. DeMille, was the 50-foot park sign proclaiming for all to see, Jesus World. A crane was at work moving the blocks, although I couldn't see why. They seemed just right to me. All around the 20-foot high walls lay desert hills, outcroppings of rock, a landscape as forbidding as you could want. Honey was a small, wiry man dressed in an ivory linen suit, the kind that always looks as if the wearer has slept in it, in Honey's case, for days. He extended his hand in welcome and said, Please drop the doctor. It's just plain old Honey, the circle drawer here. Circle drawer? I asked. He had heavy-lidded eyes, which he now closed as at some tired knee slapper. It's an ancient joke that one of the staff hung on me. Honey was a messiah, a nobby, a wise man, who predated Yeshu. I'd made a 20-hour drive from Cleveland in a car I probably couldn't make the next payment on to get here, and already we were getting our signals crossed. To his credit, Honey recognized this. He said, why don't you come around the back of the sign and let me take you on an appropriate behind-the-scenes tour? That way I can fill in the details for you. Most people you know have so little knowledge of the subject on which they place so much hope and dependence. Right. I took out my stylus, wrote that down, at the same time switching on my voice recorder app. I should have done that right away. but 20 hours, I was cooked. Hani held open an emergency exit door in the D of Jesus World, and then came up beside me. Okay, let me get you started, my boy. Even though the park is called Jesus World, that's mostly to get the public in through the door. If we'd called it the more accurate Yeshu World, who would make the turn off I-15? He grinned at the obviousness of that question. I see I said. The fact of the matter is, his contemporary name was Yeshu, which has come down to us Romanized as Jesus. It was a very common name of the day. There was a Jesus son of Sek, a Jesus son of Gamaliel, and so on. A name The name is a shortened form of Yehoshua, the Joshua of the Old Testament. Appropriately, it means God save. He stuck his index finger in the air. Always you'll note a Jesus son of somebody. That's important. Uh, Be careful to step over those cables here. Most of them are underground to maintain the air of authenticity. Right. So uh, who is our Jesus the son of? Delighted, you asked. This is a point of great speculation. There is a faction that holds he was Yeshu ben Pantera. Ben meaning son of, Pantera being the name of a Roman centurion. This was thought to be a total fabrication for a long time until the tombstone of just such a soldier was discovered in Germany. So it is just possible he was a bastard son of a Roman. That actually is somewhat supported by another faction who say he was called Yeshu Ben Miriam, Jesus, son of Mary. You see, sons were always called after their fathers, and if our Yeshu was called Ben Miriam, it again suggests illegitimacy. We'd been walking for some time behind the various park-building facades. Most were empty shells intended to be seen from the one side only. I could distinguish the shapes of the ziggurats here and there, but mostly from the back the features were unidentifiable flats with holes cut out. We descended along a rocky slope until Hani raised his hand and glanced back at me. Now, this is our first stop. This is where the little passenger train comes out and the tour guides meet everyone. We've actually taken a shorter route. Hani led me around an enormous outcropping of rock that became an overhang beneath which were what looked like three cave entrances. Within the nearest one, a small fire burned, Hay was strewn across the floor, and there were some blankets and woven mats that might have been for sleeping. Mind you, we don't actually hold with this story, which I'll explain in a moment, but this is your manger scene. <laughs> but it's a cave. Very incisive of you, it is a cave. The so-called manger of that derived tale would have been like this. We copied these from real caves that probably were used in this manner. But you don't hold with them. Not really. Not really. The poor carpenter and family tossed out on the rear story is unlikely. In the first place, carpenter was the equivalent of builder to us. Do you know any starving builders? Well, no, actually, my brother-in-law. Precisely. Most likely, he was a well-to-do kid, not impoverished at all. Carpentry and rural images run through all his teachings, you know, which indicates he knew how to plant and feed. Only when he got to Jerusalem would he have been regarded as a second-class citizen. Why? Why? Well, it was the voice. The accent. He sounded like a hick come to the big town. You know, John Voigt in Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> that sort of thing. We walked past the last of the caves and up the hill on the far side while I chewed on that notion, the idea of Jesus the Geek being made fun of by the local toughs. It wasn't too hard to imagine. <laughs> Next we descended even further to the edge of a broad stream It hooked around a hogback hillside and out of sight, all apparently natural, but of course serving Hani's goal of surprise, for when we rounded the bend, the stream broadened into a river. On our side, a sandbar hooked out, forming a huge pool. In the center of that pool stood about 20 naked people up to their bellies in the water. Their faces turned from us. They were watching a single, bearded figure who stood with his eyes closed, his hands on the head and one shoulder of a dull-looking youth. The bearded man was muttering something. The people hardly moved. Then all at once, the Baptist shoved the lad underneath the water. I guessed John the Baptist, Jesus' mentor. Many of Jesus' sayings were derived from those of John. He was quite popular, something like 5,000 followers whom Jesus inherited when John was executed. Salome, right? More likely Herod Antipas himself, who didn't care much for criticism. I was watching the event in the center of the pool. (coughs) He... Seems to be keeping that kid under for an awfully long time. Hani's brow furrowed. He watched for a few seconds, then took out a cell phone and tapped out a code. Ernie, he said, get someone to reset John the Baptist's timer, would you? Yes, he's just drowned, Jesus. He folded up the phone and slipped it into his pocket. Don't worry, we'll fix him. They're not real then heavens no, animatronics, real actors would be sneezing with pneumonia by the end of the day however the crowd is invited to wade in and participate so getting that timer set is crucial I should add the tour guide can stop the performance at any point so there is no danger he turned away while I continued to watch, there were no bubbles coming up John was still bent to his work he could keep that kid down for a week maybe they'd shut him off in order to repair him I imagined unseen engineers in subterranean vaults beneath the artificial stream. It reminded me too awfully of a park in Florida. (laughs) When I looked up, I found Hani ascending the hillside behind us as by some mystical force. He beamed at what must have been a look of amazement on my face. No doubt it was the effect he'd hoped for. I strode up below him and saw the real means of his rising. There was an escalator built into the hillside. That made sense, after all. You couldn't ask the public to climb heights such as these. On a really hot day, no one was going to want to walk very far. I said as much. Of course, Honey agreed. And no one will. The temperature here gets to 110 degrees, but the humidity is very low, so you hardly notice. How- however, nevertheless, had we been part of the regular tour, we would now have had the option of returning through the doors inside the caves back there, traveling on carts through cool subterranean tunnels. There's a refreshment stand and restrooms, tables to sit at. This journey is for the more adventurous. Well, I had to admit, he seemed to have covered the comfort of his flock. Still, I could see one of his problems right off. He needed to install rides. I mean, where was the sense of fun? Where was the laughing Jesus? At the top, we emerged onto a broad plateau in front of what I can describe only as a true spectacle. A hundred meters away, huge stone walls stood before us, buttressed randomly, seemingly erected straight up out of the hillside. I could see a few domes and rooftops above the heights, indicating a real settlement within. It seemed to be the front entrance to an ancient desert city. Jerusalem, I guessed. He nodded vigorously, then leaned closer. He smelled heavily of obsession. He said... It's really a reproduction of the town of Marsaba, which is not far from present-day Jerusalem, but don't put that in your article. Jerusalem is what it's intended to be, as it might have looked in in 15 AD. I I still have a question about the Baptist. We'll get him working, he promised. No, 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 My, my question is, why did you devise the young Jesus there to look so totally vapid? Ah, well, again, a matter of interpretation. It would seem that John and other Nabiim of the time relied heavily on basic hypnotism to transport their followers to ecstatic experiences. The practice was well known even then. There exists written corroboration by the more ancient Egyptians who apparently practiced it themselves. It is very likely one of the aspects of the art that John would have taught his young apprentice, who in turn taught it to his disciples in order to send them out across the countryside performing their own cures. I see from your look you doubt me. Doubt, I replied. I'm just trying to take this all in. It's not exactly the interpretation of events the church mentions. Well, they wouldn't, would they? He became somber. Churches are the modern equivalent of the temple that Jesus railed against and that ultimately crucified him. They have power and political influence. They're full of iconography. Never mind that it's Christian in representation. The real Jesus would have loathed it. We passed through a small doorway in the wall. Within was a vast complex of buildings and streets, large flagstones the size of human torsos lay beneath our feet, Roman flagstones, according to Hani. We arrived before a pillared building with a vast doorway surrounded on three sides by crenellated walls, and on the fourth by a large arch where we stood. This is the temple of Herod as it would have looked then, It's here that he really got into trouble. All of his following behind a man who entered the city on a donkey during the big feast, that was a real slap in the face at the Sadducean aristocrats who ran the temple. You were supposed to enter on foot, you see, to show up on a donkey. Well, in the first place, it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, and that couldn't have sat well. In the second, he was laughing at them. He might as well have dressed a monkey in priest clothes. To his view, they were defilers of all they believed in, rich priests and their families. Oh, they were the kings of nepotism. Were he alive today, he would no doubt enter Vatican City the same way and with the same attitude. He would throw out the Pope, I'm quite sure. Forgive me, but y- you seem to have something against the Catholic Church. Honey shrugged. Merely its own history of lies, greed, licentiousness, bastardy, defilement, murder, intrigue, and rapine to name a few items on a still larger list. Where is the truth of their beliefs? I stared up past rows of marble benches to the temple where animatronic moneylenders sat ready to do
2: business.
3: (laughs) Were they designed to interact with the public? I could have used a card loan. I didn't know my Bible half so well as I should have for this assignment. Mostly, I covered the local events calendar, antique shows and circuses and trucks with big tires. (laughs) Well, what about Mary, I tried, the virgin. Ha! First of all, the word is misleading. Originally, it was the word Alma, which meant nothing more than young woman. It is through mistranslations that she evolves into an icon of Parthenogenesis. For most of what is held as valid today in the way of faith on the subject, we can blame the Emperor Constantine. It was through his political meddling and siding with various factions in the nascent church that certain unfounded beliefs gained in power over the truth. Mary became the mother of God in 431 AD by a vote taken by the same greedy priests. How is one to embrace such nonsense? There's nothing in it. He was breathing heavily. I must have looked bewildered by his outburst. He held up his hand and added, I'm sorry. I'm trying only to educate people. Belief is well and good, but belief in obvious falsehoods is madness. It's futile. I want to change the belief of the world. I looked into the temple. Except for the money lenders, who were like sidewalk vendors in their booths, there was no one around. In fact, there wasn't a soul in the place except for us. Uh, I've noticed that you don't seem to be attracting much of a crowd. His bright expression dimmed. He lowered his head. Finally, he admitted, no, you've been open, what, six months? Go ahead, skewer me the way everyone else has. I've had articles written about Jesus World in every magazine and journal. Most have mocked me for what I'm doing. They don't understand my purpose. Or maybe they do, I proposed. After all, I'd listened to most of those articles on the way here. I hardly felt he'd been misrepresented except by the more fundamentalist reporters. It seems to me, honey, that it's you who've made the error. You assumed that people would want the truth about Jesus, but they don't. They want Jesus on toast. They want Jesus on a blueberry muffin. Okay. The fact is that faith is itself irrational. It's not interested in the facts. If someone's got a drug problem, say, they might embrace Jesus as a way out. Now that person's not going to want to hear about your real Jesus or what he had to say. He's not going to care that you can point out the sheep pool or Golgotha or Pilate's house. He's got a personal Jesus, you know? It hasn't got a damn thing to do with the real story, the true events. The only people who are going to care about your little world are people who have already blown off the whole story and who therefore aren't going to travel to a place that offers answers such as yours. To my surprise, he was nodding and smiling again. Yes, yes, that's it. exactly the very conclusion I came to, my boy, and that's why we're in the process of adding our very newest exhibit, which you must write about. The latest, best, and a sure draw. He ushered me excitedly out of the Holy City. We exited through a different door into a short tunnel to the underground rail line he'd had installed. About a dozen small cars waited to whisk us to the next remarkable location. I climbed in after him. Now Where? He put the car in motion and we whisked along the rail. Recessed lights flashed by overhead. He had his back to me as he watched the rail ahead, but his words whipped over his shoulder and he gestured broadly as always. I'm looking to the future now. Exactly as you suggest, people personalize Jesus just so. They mix him up in colors of their own choosing, stretch him and redesign him. They find him in the mold growing on a piece of rotten fruit and put him on Facebook. So I said to myself, how will they next redefine him? What will his next devolution be? And the answer came to me, you won't believe where from. Divine intervention. Old supermarket tabloids and Us Magazine and the History Channel. The car shook and started to slow down. He craned his neck to look at me. Celebrity obsession and pseudo fact, it's really the new folk religion, isn't it? people without a smattering of education embracing all of these ridiculous stories about UFOs building the pyramids and past lives and film star bikini diets. That is precisely how we've ended up with the absurdities embraced by the very church itself. The future, as I thus perceive it, will be the source of the next phase in the growth of our park. The car came to a stop. We stepped onto a concrete runway. You must understand it's not finished yet, but I have the backing. The money is there. Naturally. It was time to agree with everything. You'll be the first journalist to see it, we rode up another escalator. At the top of this one was a pink light so bright it was like looking into the sun. Squinting, I edged along after him, but the light seemed to be tracking me. It soon dimmed, and there before me was a sight that riveted me to the spot. It was a cyclorama of a great curving hillside studded with crosses. There must have been hundreds of them. And in the center, right up front, was the one made of gold. On it, dressed in tight black pants and a red jacket, hung Elvis Presley. (laughs) His face, tilted and gazing up into the sky, wore the same soulful look of a million third-rate portraits of Jesus. Hani had captured him perfectly. He was watching my face. But this time I knew better than to let my reaction show. Give me some credit, for Christ's sake. I said, as non-committally as possible, this is different. Isn't it, he said intensely, and what a draw it will be. They're changing the sign out front right now. You saw the crane as you came in. From now on, no more Jesus world. From now on, it's King's world. King's world. I predict a hundred years from now, it will be firmly held belief of the majority of America, if not the world, that Elvis was the second coming that he too returned from the dead. He appeared on refrigerators like little children's finger paintings. He sang from out of cash registers. The myriad stories will all tangle up and a single entity will emerge as Mary emerged as the Virgin Mary four centuries after Jesus. We will be there first, leading the way. If I can do that, I can perhaps lead them back to a more reasonable path, don't you think so? I didn't, but why say so? (laughs) He didn't want to hear it. Like everybody else, he disdained. He, too, had personalized his Jesus. Jesus was not Yeshu Ben Miriam. Jesus was not the Christ. Jesus was certainly not Elvis Aaron Presley. Jesus was silly putty. Don't you agree that by adding Elvis we will bring the audience we want people misled for ages by absurdities and their own confusion? Oh, I've no doubt whatsoever. I was looking for an exit. Hani was rubbing his hands together. Wait until you see how I've combined them. We're going to be selling a book that blends the real teachings of Yeshu with some of the more pithy lyrics of Presley. We're calling it Wise Men Say. (laughs) Recycled paper, naturally. This crucifixion scene, I realize, is wholly unrealistic, but won't it get them in the door, though? You have to get them in the door. Oh, you so do. I spotted an exit sign next to the men's room and eased in that direction. Honey, will you excuse me for a minute? But of course, he gestured in that direction as though I weren't heading for the restroom already. I will be here when you've finished. We'll have some lunch. Sure we will. I made a beeline for the bathroom and only deviated at the very last moment without a look back. He must not have been watching because he didn't come screaming after me. I found myself in another hallway. A sign pointed the way out. I passed a room under construction. It was the only time I saw other living beings in the whole damn park. Workmen were replacing the robot head of Lazarus with the head of a rough-looking bearded Elvis, I think maybe from Charo. It blinked at me. I could imagine all too horribly the musical number about to follow his sitting up, and I fled ahead of the opening bars. Well, there's one for the money, two for the show. I burst through the set of double exit doors and into the deserted parking lot. The roar of machinery surrounded me, drowning out that song. Off to the left, the immense diesel crane swung a giant J out over the tarmac to where other letters were piled up. I jumped into my car, tossing the tablet in, and while digging for my keys, glanced at the display that remained. Us world, it proclaimed. I backed the car out of its space. The front axle shivered violently. It didn't like to go backwards. Twenty hours to Cleveland. Maybe I thought I should make a detour. Stop off at Graceland before heading home. I didn't want to waste the trip. Might even prove educational. Jesus knew. Thank you. <laughs> I have a Okay. Did you update it? Slightly, yes, did. I did. Because yes.
1: the tablet and all that stuff. Uh-huh. So
3: where did it first appear? It first appeared in Pulp House, a special issue of Pulp House magazine that Damon Knight edited that was the all-Jesus issue of Pulp House. <laughs> <laughs> I do not make this up. Oh um, and then Mike Bishop picked it up for his anthology. So, yeah. so. There, I will leave you now. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Thank you. That was <laughs> so we're going to well, take, a gonna take about a
1: ten-minute break. Um, just sit around, hang around, drink. Talk, drink. And we'll be back.
2: All right, we're going to start with the next reader. When you get a chance, if you could lower the music for us? Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us at uh, KGB Fantastic Fiction. All right, we're going to get started with our next reader. Hope everyone... uh, having a good night. Uh, My name is Matt Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. And uh, KGB Fantastic Fiction, if you don't know, is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month. And we have uh, a lot of good readers coming up for you in the next few months. So uh, next month, February 18th, Mike Allen and Ben Lurie. March 18th, Lisa Minetti and Caitlin Kiernan. April 15th, Ken Liu and James Morrow. May 20th, Wesley Chu and Nicole Corner-Stace. June 17th, uh, Michaela Rossner and Simon Strances. David, uh, excuse me, July 15th, David Edison. August 19th, N.K. Jemison and A.C. Wise. And a uh, bunch, of, bunch of really uh, amazing authors coming up for you guys in the next few months. Um, as Ellen said earlier, um, there's never a charge of KGB Fantastic Fiction. All we ask is that you drink. Uh, soft or hard whether it's soda or an alcoholic beverage buy a drink tip your bartenders they work hard um, always friendly and uh, this is a great venue let's keep it going buy a drink please um, our next reader is Andy Duncan um, Yes. Andy Short Fiction has won a Nebula Award, Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award, and three World Fantasy Awards, the most recent in 2014 for Wakula Springs, uh, a tour.com novella co-written with Ellen Clages. Also in 2014, Andy co-taught the Science Fiction Foundation Masterclass in SF Criticism, held at the Royal Greenwich Observatory in London. This spring, he's on sabbatical from Frostburg State University in Maryland, where he's a tenured associate professor of English. Here's Andy Duncan. Thank,
4: I will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Somewhere Somewhere I have my notebook. Um, thank you all for coming out um, is in greg frost great for everybody? <laughs> he is. every time i'm around my friend greg frost i think what a professional he is in every respect and i i respect, I, I respect that uh... from a distance i respect it um, I myself have no compunction whatsoever about reading from a novel in progress, none.
1: Uh,
4: Joe Burlett, who has cordially hated me for many years, says that one of the things he hates worst about me is he says he could sort of, it's bad enough, Joe says, that I read excerpts rather than completed stories. He said it's even worse that I read excerpts of not yet published stories. So he has to wait to find out what happened, but he said the fact that I read excerpts of unpublished and unfinished stories is too much to be born. Uh, so fortunately, Joe is not here tonight, and that's exactly what y'all are going to get. The, uh, the, uh, the, the title of the working title, to the extent it works, of my novel, of my novel in progress is The Man Who Rode the Mule Around the World. It is loosely based on the pioneering country music star Charlie Poole, the North Carolina mill worker who drank himself to death in 1931. Uh, This is an 11-page bit that comes early in the manuscript, and it begins with Charlie visiting his mentor, a hermit who lives in the woods. And the mentor has promised Charlie a special banjo once he proves himself ready for it. So I think that's all you need to know. And I'm going to avoid singing. Even though the book is a musical. (laughs) Which is harder than you would think. Oh, uh, Michael Swanwick taught me years ago That when you're doing a live reading and you have a glass of water, whenever you hit the page break, you take a sip of water. That will become important later on. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie Poole showed up at Dana Johnson's place one day with a new swagger in his step a new wildness in his eyes, hands jammed into his pockets. Rocking to and fro on his heels, he acted like a little boy about to blurt the world's best secret. (laughs) Where you been, Dana asked. Don't answer that. I don't want people knowing where I go, and you deserve the same courtesy. But I hope you'll tell me what's got into you. Have you won the Irish sweepstakes? Just feeling the springtime, I reckon, Charlie said. I hear you got a banjo needs playing. Daner grunted. I might, Daner said. If the man shows up, who knows how to play it. I deserve a chance, don't I? Charlie asked. He had some trick up his sleeve, but Daner couldn't figure what it might be. Besides, Daner wasn't getting any younger. Daner grunted again, lifted the lid of the cedar chest, and pulled forth an oblong object wrapped in cheesecloth. He peeled away the layers. Newer, fancier banjos existed in the world, but this one had the satisfied gleam of long use and care. The model name across the belly was stroked nearly into oblivion, only the G was readable. The strings seemed almost to vibrate on their own. Daner and Charlie looked at the banjo for a few moments, Daner with the calm, warm gaze of an old friend, Charlie with a more covetous, even angry, gleam. Yet the younger man respectfully waited for his cue. Go ahead then, Daner said, turning away, opening the screen door and stepping to the edge of the porch, not watching as Charlie spent his first few moments with the instrument. In front of Daner's cabin was a broad, cool, flat, slate rock that was fine for shady-sittin' and Daner settled himself on it, looking up at the patchy sky through the limbs and the leaves. He registered nothing but the breeze and the familiar hollows of the rock beneath his bony buttocks, but as he sat, he flexed his fingers involuntarily. Behind him, the screen door pronged open and slapped shut, and Charlie stepped past Daner, walked to the edge of Daner's hill, where the mossy path dropped down into the woods. He cradled the banjo before him. With his back to Daner, Charlie began to play and to sing, Don't Let Your Deal Go Down. Daner stood in open-mouthed astonishment. The singing voice was Charlie's unmistakable, mush-mouthed yawp, but the playing that was new. Could Charlie have double-crossed his teacher, pulled one of the other banjos out of the chest while his back was turned? But Daner owned no banjo with a sound like this, not before today, anyway, and he was pretty sure no one else had either. This playin' had a new urgency, a new depth. It seemed to provide its own echo as if three hands formed the downstroke instead of one. The song was one of the oldest Daner knew, one of the oldest anyone in North Carolina knew, but somehow Charlie had found more notes in it than anyone had before. Daner edged forward until, God Almighty, Daner cried. Boy, what have you done to your hand? Daner seized Charlie's right wrist in one hand and the neck of the banjo in the other. Charlie held on to the neck, and for a second the two men glared at one another, nearly nose to nose, as if committing to a struggle that would tear the old banjo to pieces. But Charlie let go. Daner laid down the instrument without looking at it and took gentle hold of Charlie's right hand. Charlie put up only a token struggle. The thumb and index finger looked normal, but the other three fingers were swollen, scarred, and hooked inward as a single crab-like unit. Daner tried and failed to separate them. Ow, Charlie said, quit that. They ain't going to work that way anymore, Daner. Daner looked pale, gaunt, twenty years older. Lord, Charlie, how'd you break your fingers? Why didn't you have them set? Don't they hurt you? No, not after the first day or so. Mostly numb, to tell you the truth about it. But son, how can you play like that without feeling in them? Charlie laughed. I ain't got feeling in my picks and frets neither, but I can play with them just the same. Look just like a claw hammer, don't they? They look plumb awful, Daner said. They look, he added, and stopped. He almost had said they looked like the mark of Cain. How did it happen? <laughs> <laughs> when asked how he broke his fingers, Charlie liked to tell this story. Late one night he was rambling through the woods above the mill with nothing particular to do but go on home and no special desire to do it. When an old oak stump in his path belched into flame just like a locomotive smokestack and the devil stepped out of the flame. (laughs) She had bobbed jet black hair and wore a tight knee-high see-through black flapper dress and a long white string of pearls that nearly dragged the ground. She was really something. And the sight of her made Charlie's pecker so hard it hurt, even though there were no whites in her eyes, just dark on dark, and her feet were hairy and clawed like a bear's. (laughs) Struck dumb with terror and desire, Charlie wondered whether she was that hairy under the dress. (laughs) Never you mind that just yet, said the devil. She could hear even words unspoken, which is most of them. I've had my eye on you for a while now, Charlie Poole. How come, Charlie asked. (laughs) Because I like you, the devil said. I purely love a banjo, and I like the way you play it. I like that you do not go to church for reasons other than laziness. I like how when you pee, you give your little thing two more jerks than are, strictly speaking, necessary. (laughs) And for all those reasons, Charlie, I'm going to do you a favor. No strings attached, and if you go through with it, I might even let you take a poke at me with that little thing of yours. It would be a nice change of pace from what I'm used to, since you would be alive and willing and all. (laughs) What favor is that, Charlie asked. He was watching her moving pearl necklace, which crawled snake-like along the front of her dress without her fingers touching it. "'Well, I want to make you the best banjo picker ever "'to come out of North Carolina, that's all.' "'I'm that already,' Charlie said. "'What else you got?' (laughs) "'He cocked his head to see better through her dress, "'but she moved away from the fire "'so that she wasn't backlit anymore "'and laughed merrily, a lovely silvery laugh "'that made birds drop dead from the trees all around "'and made Charlie's nose bleed.' (laughs) Don't try to horse shit me, the devil said. I invented horse shit. The kind you deal in, anyway. You and I both know you ain't that good, not yet, but that you want to be and could be with my help. What's the catch, Charlie asked, through his handkerchief. He had about got the bleeding to stop, and because she looked amused enough to laugh again, he quickly rephrased the question. I mean, what do I have to do? Just let me break three of your fingers on your right hand. They'll set you up just right for picking, believe me. Charlie looked around in fear. How are you going to drop a tree on me? (laughs) What fun is that, the devil said, hiking her dress up to mid-thigh and wiggling. Just put your hand between my legs. You know where it is. And make me happy. And when I get real happy, my muscles will do the rest. I don't want to get beneath your dress that bad, Charlie said. Suppose I say no. The devil shrugged. Then you go on about your business, and I go on about mine, and the offer will never be repeated, and I wish you a lot of luck. I hear the mill down in spray is hiring and if textiles go south there's always the mines." Charlie wavered. He had been sober when the devil showed up but she was making him feel drunk and restless. If I already broke my hand sticking it in there what makes you think I'd stick my pecker in too? You just break it off like a stick. Now, Charlie, the devil said, why would I ever want to break that? He can do more devilment than a banjo, even. <laughs> she hiked her dress even farther then, and her necklace slivered off her neck and sidewindered across the ground to swarm whitely over the one of the dead birds and begin to feed. And Charlie could not help walking forward, could not help reaching out his hand. <laughs> When asked how he broke his fingers, (laughs) Charlie liked to tell this story. He was out front of Dana Johnson's cabin, kneeling before a slate rock and sweating in the sun. His right hand was staked flat out on the rock, fingers separated by thick pegs wedged low into the joints, wrist and forearm trussed with ropes that wrapped all around the rock. He couldn't move his arm, only work his fingers up and down a little between the pegs, like the last leg kicks of something on its back and dying. His arm below the elbow had gone to sleep, so even those little motions were like a thousand pinpricks going in. This what you want, Charlie Poole, asked Daner Johnson, who stood with one foot on the slate rock looking down at Charlie. Daner hefted a double-headed sledgehammer the kind used for pile driving. His ropey arm muscles bulged as he handled it. The double head was flecked with red spots, some of which were rust. <laughs> yes, damn it, Charlie yelled. I've been telling you for three hours. Go on and do it, damn your skinny widow eatin' hide. You need to understand, Daner said. This ain't only your fingers we're shaping here. We're shaping your life. The life of a banjo picker, Charlie, is no easy life, nor necessarily a long life, certainly not a respectable life, not like the lives of those who add columns of figures, those who answer other people's telephones, or those who move papers from one drawer to another. (laughs) To an outsider, in fact, A banjo picker's life may look like no life at all, but it will be your life, Charlie, and no mistake. There will be no turning back. Yes, 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 we've been through all that ten times, Charlie said. What the hell is this, the masons? Let's get it over with. Just give me one more slug of whiskey first. Ain't no more whiskey, Daner said. You done drunk it all. What? That one little flask I brought from town? Come on, Daner. You've lived in these woods your whole life. The creeks out here run yellow with sour mash. Every farmer who makes a trip to the store finds reason to bring home 20 pounds of sugar. You're surrounded by the smoke from the cottage industries all around. I know you got to have a jug of corn laid by someplace. It's only human. (laughs) No, sir, Daner said, shaking his head, his white beard wagging. His eyes seemed to retreat in his head. I renounced the drinking of alcohol, Daner said, when I took up the banjo and pledged to make it my life, here on this very stone. I made an exception in your case today for the obvious medicinal and anesthetic qualities of a right Snoopful, but otherwise, drink and the banjo do not mix. Guitarists, yay, may gulp it up in buckets. (laughs) And fiddlers, yes, may bathe in it. And the capacious habits of mandolin players and, worse yet, auto-harpists do not bear description in the corridors of the just. But for the banjo player, ah, the sanctified banjo player, to know alcohol is a perversion and abomination unto the Lord. For from the banjo comes the rhythm, and the rhythm must always be steady and true. There was a long silence. <laughs> Not a page break, but a long silence. <laughs> the sun dipped below the tree line. A warbler flitted from perch to perch. A chipmunk approached the two motionless figures, nosed around the edge of the rock, and then scampered into the wood pile and disappeared. Finally, Charlie said, Now you tell me. He who has ears, Daner intoned, let them hear. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Well, shit. That which is shit, Dana in tune, shit it shall remain. I don't suppose you know any old wild-eyed hermit auto harp players. Can't say that I do. You know, I might just take me a nip now and then. That which you sow, you shall also reap, Dana shrugged. But it's your life. And the banjo life you're describing, Charlie said, well, it ain't natural. It ain't right. Hell, it ain't even human. Now you got it, Daner said, and swung that hammer down. When asked how he broke his fingers, Charlie liked to tell this story. The bedroom door slammed open. Charlie leapt sideways, misjudged the edge of the unfamiliar bed, having been occupied squarely in the middle of it for a good hour, and fell to the rough plank floor, dragging half the bedclothes after him. Izzy covered herself as best she could, gathering the remaining sheet beneath her chin, one long bare leg exposed. Her father, advancing on the bed in no special hurry, seized her tiny foot in his quart-jug hand. Cover up before your own kin, her father breathed, but rut like a sow with this wastrel, this stranger. The wastrel, the stranger, shinnied backward, gathered splinters as he yanked on his trousers and looked toward the room's only window, which was, alas, on the far side of the bed. Daddy, don't, cried Izzy as he slipped one meaty finger beneath her sparkling ankle bracelet, which Charlie had given her that very afternoon. His other hand caressed her foot, then squeezed it tighter and tighter, and she cried out as the small bones ground together. What whore's jewelry is this, her father cooed, a gigaw that can't even be seen unless your skirts are up and your knees in the air. He yanked and twisted the bracelet which cut into her foot before the chain broke. He dashed it into the corner, ripped the sheet two-handed from the girl's plucking fingers. He let the sheet puddle around his ankles and gazed out at Easy as she squirmed, trying to cover herself with her hands. Charlie jerked on his shirt and sidled toward the door. I see you, Isadora, her father said. I see you and I know you. "'All your whore's equipment is known to me. "'And just where do you think you're going, Sonny Jim?' "'He continued to stare at the sobbing girl as he said this, "'but Charlie stopped, arrested. "'You should have left sooner, son,' Izzy's father said, "'turning his gaze to Charlie. "'You should have left before you got here. "'It's too late now. "'Please, Mr. Barnhart,' Charlie said.' Let you and me go outside, talk this over. Barnhart was expressionless as he slowly put his hands on his waist, moved them forward to the front of his breeches, as if he intended to piss on both of them. He was a rangy, narrow-waisted man and wore twice the belt he needed, doubling it across, and sometimes was asked why he wore such a belt as that. The true answer was that he lived for just such occasions as this. It was part of his nature, that belt. He slowly unbuckled it and drew it free with a hiss, flexing the strap in his sweating hands. No need for Izzy to see this, Charlie squawked. Let's go outside, please. Her name is Isadora, Barnhart said, named for her mother dead these past five years. "'I'm real sorry,' Charlie said, stalling. "'His shirt hung unbuttoned. "'His arms and hands were loose at his sides. "'His legs were braced, but he was unarmed. "'His own belt was draped across the room's only chair, "'but his belt was a poor cardboard thing, a musician's belt. "'The chair would be better, but it was not in reach, "'and to reach for it or for the banjo under the bed "'would be to invite Barnhart to swing.' I loved that woman, Barnhart said, in a flat recitation like ordering dry goods. But she was a whore, too. (laughs) Mama, Izzy, sobbed, and her father, no warning on his face, whirled and whipped her once with the belt, yanking it away and turning back to Charlie before the younger man could move two inches. Izzy shrieked and writhed as the angry red stripe rose across her belly. Hush, Barnhart said still looking at Charlie. I love you, Isadora, so you won't get the buckle in. He wrapped the naked end around his fist. The buckle swung like a pendulum, and Charlie was mesmerized. Barnhart lunged, lashed out. Charlie seized the belt midway, the buckle looping behind him and taking a chunk from his back. He yanked Barnhart off balance, then head-butted him in the chin. Both men hit the floor as Izzy sprang from the bed and bolted naked through the doorway and was gone. The man, the men rolled, cursing and kicking and gouging, fighting for the belt. Charlie could smell the biscuits and molasses on Barnhart's breath. They rolled into Izzy's vanity. Its mirror slammed the wall and broke. And everything that had been heaped on the deal top in the heat of the moment now tumbled onto them. Hairbrush, wallet, daisy-imprinted frock, underpants, pocket Bible, flask. Charlie punched Barnhart in the throat and rolled free, lunged beneath the bed, grabbed the neck of his banjo and swung it forward, sliding backward as he weighed the fat end at Barnhart. He hoped not to have to use it, however satisfying would be the five bleeding welts across the bastard space. Barnhart went utterly still. A musician, he said. He smiled then for the first time. Her mama was always partial to musicians. Charlie had no awareness of movement, of Barnhart actually covering the distance. One instant he was crouched half beneath the vanity, his daughter's frock draped across one shoulder like a cape The next, he was on top of Charlie with his hands around his neck, slamming the back of his head into the planks. Fucking banjo players, Barnhart snarled, choking Charlie while dragging him toward the door. Fucking banjo players with their stinking, diddling little fingers. He seized Charlie's right hand and fed it into the gap between the door and the wall just above the bottom hinge. Jesus, no! Charlie screamed. <laughs> when asked how he broke his fingers, <laughs> Charlie liked to tell any number of stories depending on his mood, some of which were partially true. Jump it! his buddy hollered from the boxcar door as Charlie ran alongside the speeding up train, gravel in his shoes, cutting his feet with every step. At the last possible moment, he reached for the bottom rung and lunged. It ain't no trouble at all, ma'am. I'm glad to help, Charlie groaned, tottering beneath the weight of the old lady's steamer trunk. Without warning, one of the anvils or encyclopedia sets or dead bodies inside shifted and sent him stumbling sideways toward the head of the boarding house stairs. I got it, I got it, Charlie yelled, running backward, barehanded into the outfield. Eat this then, you son of a bitch, Charlie snarled, drawing back his fist. Mules love apples. Want an apple, little fellow? Nice apple. Ten cents says this fan can't hurt me, Charlie said. Jabbing at the blades. Hey! Charlie yelled across the whorehouse parlor. Watch
1: this!
4: (laughs) (laughs) When Charlie was finished telling Daner what happened to his fingers, Daner just stared at him there on the mountain before the cabin. The sun would still be up in the flat, but up here the sky had purpled and the night breeze had kicked up. I never lied to you, Charlie, father you know, finally said and turned and walked inside. He walked slowly and judged the porch step before he ascended, and his silhouette in the rectangled lamplight of the doorway was stooped before he eased the door shut behind him, cutting off the light. Charlie heard the strap drawn across and then the latch. And yet Charlie still held the banjo, and the banjo was what he had come for, wasn't it? He had no lantern and had to stumble his way down the slope, though he fancied that the banjo caught some of the moonlight and shone before him, as if the strings were made of silver and the frets were cut stones like bright eyes, like stars. Thank you. on sabbatical this spring and there's a few other things to finish but uh, this one's this one's pretty close it's surprisingly close surprising to me so close that I now can even refer to it as a novel rather than as like a book length narrative fiction thing
0: So.
4: so
2: you and Greg didn't collaborate on what you were reading at all no Telepathy.
4: (laughs) Thank you all.
1: Thank you very much. Hang out. You don't have to leave. Um, And see you next month.
0: You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Lindzer for providing the audio, and Rajin Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.